really gives me great pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Frank Rizzullo. Um, he's an associate professor of anesthesiology and intensive care at University Hospital in Brescia, Italy, where he heads the neurocritical care department. And he's also the director of the residency program for anesthesia and intensive care. He's also the chair of neuroanesthesia and neurocritical care section of the Italian Society of Anesthesia and Intensive Care. And his research focus has been on intracranial pressure, obviously, which is what he's going to chat to us about today, um, on which he has published innumerable articles. One of his most recent articles published in Critical Care was the Impressive 2 trial, in which he's a principal investigator. And this was a prospective multi-center international trial that looked at transcranial Doppler as a screening tool to exclude intracranial hypertension in patients who present with brain injury. So I know our neurocritical care group is uh, super thrilled to have him here. So uh, please join me in welcoming, welcoming him here today with us. Thank you, Melissa, for the uh, wonderful introduction. And um, it's a pleasure and honor to speak um, for, you, for you all. And uh, I usually start when they invite me uh, abroad in Italy, even especially in England, I usually start by saying, excuse my English, I don't speak English because I'm from New Jersey, but uh, I uh, kind of feel at home here. So uh, this is my hospital, it's in Brescia, it's up north. And uh, these are my disclosures, none for this talk. This is where I'm speaking from at the moment. Uh, the, unfortunately, my hospital is, um, uh, has kind of a sad record for being the largest COVID-19 hospital in the world after Wuhan, because we were the first to have been involved by COVID-19 after the outbreak in, uh, in China. And we were hit kind of hard. At one point, we had more than 1,000 COVID-19 patients uh, admitted to our, uh, to our hospital. Anyway, we're here for the intracranial hypertension talk. So just by giving you a very quick uh, definition, I, uh, as I asked Melissa, I didn't know uh, what the audience, um, who uh, the audience was composed of. So I'll start from uh, very basic saying, excuse me for being uh, oversimplistic sometimes, and then I'll move towards something a bit more, more uh, up to date. So um, defined as a sustained elevation of intracranial pressure above normal threshold values. What is, the no what is the normal threshold value? Well, it kind of depends on um, type of pathology and on the uh, position a person may be in, whether you're lying down or standing up, and also body composition. We know that obesity is kind of correlated with a higher threshold of intracranial uh, of pressure. So let's say above 1520, uh, you're still with the, uh, below 1520, you're still within a normal ICP threshold. Um, uh, let's say that intracranial hypertension obviously is not something new since there are indications of uh, people being trephinated, drill hold, um, dating back to almost 2000 years before Christ, the uh, ancient Egyptians have done it. And uh, through the years until the uh, Inca also have done it. Uh, and actually, they've done quite a good job, as you can see on the right. You have a, uh, this is a gold plate, which was been positioned beneath the patient's uh, uh, scalp. And the patient uh, actually survived, since you can see the healing 
of that skull itself. And through the uh, years until the 16th century, they kind of performed it a bit uh, more eventually, where you can see here the uh, surgeon was performing this trephination uh, with his tool, and he kind of looked pretty mad here, as you can tell by his face. And in a very difficult, uh, obviously non-antiseptic non, um, situation, you have here the cat, which was eating God knows what, and uh, the uh, terrible tools here also. Uh, things kind of changed through the 18th century already by, you can tell the face of the surgeon here, which was kind of, kind of uh, let's say, um, pretty satisfied for um, what job he, he was doing. And also his, uh, the position of his hands with his pinky as, he, as pinkies are raised as if he was drinking tea at the time. Patient's face hasn't changed much, but the, the uh, velvet container of the uh, utensils has also. So let's get into the argument a bit deeper. It wasn't until uh, Monroe first described a uh, certain uh, doctrine, which is now called the uh, Monroe Kelly Doctrine. I know you're all familiar with it. And basically what it says that the brain is contained within a rigid uh, container, which is the skull. And uh, the brain is roughly composed of three main uh, components, brain, blood, and um, CSF, cerebrospinal fluid. Brain mostly 80%, blood is, composes 10%, and CSF another 10%. And if uh, one or more of these components should increase, then uh, at least one or two of the other components should uh, decrease in order to keep maintain a constant volume and therefore constant pressure within this rigid container, which is our skull. Almost as if you could imagine somebody walking into a completely full elevator. If one or two people uh, need to get into that elevator, then uh, they would have to be substituted with another two people, one or two people moving out, or else the elevator would have to uh, increase in diameter, which is obviously, obviously not possible. So that kind of brings us to the definition of compliance. Now we know that the brain is compliant. If these mechanisms are maintained, then we could imagine as uh, drawn here, that if a um, mass would increase within the brain, in this case, it's a uh, uh, epidural hematoma, um, then uh, the uh, me uh, mechanisms which would normally compensate, which I've shown you pre in previous slides, they would compensate until a certain point where large increases of volume would only represent small increases in ICP. Once these mechanisms have been, uh, um, I, you can say, I can say, it, um, yeah, terminated. Uh, then uh, small, uh, no, there's no more compensation. Therefore, small increases of intracranial volume would be represent would represent large increases in intracranial pressure due to the exhausted. That's the word I was trying to uh, find. Exhausted uh, mechanisms. So you would have initially high compliance due to the um, Monroe Kelly doctrine. Then they would start the uh, compliance would start to decrease and then they would become minimal until a point where the vessels would collapse because of an imploding high intracranial pressure within 
the cranium, we should exert its pressure internally uh, since it's not possible to exert it externally. Now, this is just uh, an example of how this compliance can change. Uh, if I were to ask you if this is a normal CT scan, obviously you're all experts. It looks like a very tight brain, but it's actually a normal CT scan of a 12-year-old. Now, this 12-year-old, uh, although the 12-year-old, obviously normal 12-year-old, would have normal compensatory mechanisms, Still, the brain being a bit tight, you would have an initial phase of uh, compensation, and then that would move to uh, the exhaustion of the uh, mechanisms which normally compensate until you would have exhaustion of the uh, PDI index. This, uh, is this a normal brain? Well, this is a brain of a um, brain atrophy due to um, chronic abuse of alcohol going from 2008 to 2014, my brain would probably be the version of 2023. Anyway, uh, you can see that here there's a lot, you could imagine that this brain has a lot of, of space uh, due to brain atrophy and therefore the compliance would be uh, greater. And that's actually the case. If we were to exert pressure due to maybe, and uh, if this patient were to have a, a subdural hematoma, which is quite common in these patients, uh, subdural hematoma, that would cause uh, a problem only when the uh, intracranial and only when the volume would surpass a certain volume, uh, definitely uh, um, larger than the uh, previous patient. And only then will the intracranial pressure start to increase. And this is well documented uh, in many papers um, that older patients uh, may have higher GCS scores, despite uh, equal uh, TBI uh, severity, because of the compensatory mechanisms. However, these patients, uh, although they do have higher GCS scores, they have a higher mortality because older patients, elderly patients do use, uh, they're fragile, so they do have a tendency to use um, antiplatelet drugs or anticoagulants, so their, say, their mortality is higher. This is a very recent patient that we had in the intensive care unit. This patient came in awake, it's a intraparenchymal hematoma. Patient was, uh, had a GCS of maybe 14, uh, 68-year-old patient, and uh, the neurosurgeons, both the neurosurgeons, both because of the high GCS and because of the, uh, the fact that it was an intracranial hematoma in a patient, 68-year-old, they decided not to operate the patient. Um, so we performed a few CT scans and uh, they all showed increase in the hematoma. And it was only until patient had this sign, I call it the ghost sign because it does look like a, look like a ghost within the brain, did the patient have a rapid deterioration in uh, the uh, cognitive, uh, the patient did have a uh, rapid cognitive decline and therefore uh, obviously went off to having a uh, unfortunate uh, outcome. So uh, what are the main causes of intracranial hypertension? They can be classified into intracranial causes or extracranial causes. I won't get into them specifically. It's just to mention that uh, among the extracranial causes, you can have a important increase in intracranial pressure, which can determine outcome in a patient, for example, with acute liver failure. Many patients die because of the intracranial hypertension before liver failure itself. So it is 
a problem among many types of uh, pathologies. And there are chronic forms of intracranial uh, hypertension. As we know that anything uh, which is formed chronically uh, may have a, uh, exert lesser clinical problems on patients. In this case, intracranial um, idiopathic hypertension, since it does increase maybe through the years, may not have uh, clinical significance until it becomes, uh, until some certain mechanisms of compensation also here are exhausted. Um, for example, maybe due to a, a difference in the ratio of CSF production and the drainage, and these are all the causes here. I believe that I may also leave you slides if you're interested, so you could look at these uh, later on if you're interested. Regarding, I will speak mostly about TBI because I think also in, uh, in, in your region, in uh, the uh, Baltimore region, uh, we have a high incidence of uh, TBI since we do have also here for various reasons, whether it be uh, falls or uh, violence inflicted or uh, even due to uh, t um, traffic accident uh, causes. And um, regarding TBI itself, you can have uh, increases and of uh, higher risk of having an intracranial hypertension uh, based on a type of a TBI, whether it be parenchymal lesions and contusions do have the higher risk of forming of um, having intracranial hypertension. They are associated with a higher mortality. If you have a vascular lesion, then the subdural hematomas are the ones that are highly, highly prone to have increase in, in uh, ICP and therefore intracranial hypertension and therefore increase in mortality. So therefore injury, uh, brain injury is associated with a, uh, commonly with a higher incidence of uh, intracranial hypertension because of the mechanisms which I've spoken to previously, about previously. And I kind of look at it as if we were dealing with a pressure cooker. Now, if the mechanisms work, then the pressure cooker valve um, is working and kind of set, lets off the steam and keeps that pressure constant. If this uh, mechanism, uh, until the pressure in the pressure cooker would increase to a point where that valve would not be enough to um, let out the steam and therefore the pressure would increase. And this would cause a problem within cerebral uh, circulation causing the vessels to implode and eventually to uh, uh, you would surpass the critical closing pressure and this would cause a uh, reduction in cerebral blood flow until reaching cerebral circulatory arrest in certain cases therefore uh, we know that cerebral blood flow is directly conditioned by cerebral perfusion pressure, which is a driving pressure uh, bringing blood uh, uh, within the brain. And that is the cerebral perfusion pressure we know is the difference between mean arterial pressure and ICP itself. So if we have an increase in ICP, cerebral blood flow will reduce unless we increase mean arterial blood pressure and that will kind of compensate and bring CBF back to normal values. And vice versa, if we were to reduce uh, blood flow, um, mean arterial blood flow, that would cause a reduction in cerebral blood flow unless we reduce ICP. So there is uh, a cerebral auditory mechanism here involved, which we'll, be, which we'll speak about later on. 
so what about outcome? Well, we know injury is associated to increases in ICP and intracranial hypertension is associated to a, a poor outcome in brain injury patients. We have no doubt about this. And this has been known ever since the early studies have been performed uh, by uh, Narayan and uh, Marmaru a few years back, where they've seen that within the uh, studies performed that 20, a threshold of 20 millimeters Hg based on the outcome of these experimental studies and studies on uh, patients regarding patients did represent a, thresh, a threshold above which we would consider it to be uh, uh, intracranial hypertension based on the outcome of patients. And this has been uh, adapted within the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines first published in 1995, where they, where they considered intracranial hypertension as a pressure above 20 millimeters Hg. It remains so until the uh, third edition of uh, uh, Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines until we reached the fourth edition published in 2012, where just one single study published by Sorrentino, I believe in the Cambridge group, uh, it was a retrospective study in 459 patients um, where they took into consideration also the cerebral reactivity uh, of the, um, the cerebral autoregulation. And based on this single study, they increased the threshold to uh, 22 millimeters Hg. So that's just two millimeters Hg. Does this make a significant difference on the outcome of these patients? Well, uh, possibly not, but that's what the uh, present threshold is. Another important uh, concept is the dose of the intensity. Now, if we were to uh, compare uh, the intensity of intracranial pressure to, let's say, the uh, to heat. Now, if we expose somebody to a um, to a sun, especially somebody with a fair skin, for a very long period of time without any sun protectors, then uh, eventually this person will have a lesion due to the uh, sun rays, which is not a high intensity, but because of the long exposure, the patient will have, the person, sorry, will have a, uh, um, a consequence. However, if somebody were to walk on, um, on charcoal that's, uh, or on very uh, heated charcoal, uh, even though the stimulation is of high intensity, but the time that the skin is on top of the uh, on the um, on the the, the, the coal and the charcoal is such a short period of time, uh, this person here will most likely not have any lesions. So it doesn't only depend on the intensity itself, but also of the exposure, but also on the duration. And this has been um studied quite um quite well by group the group in uh, in uh, belgium where they've seen as you see in red you would have the patient would have the uh, patients who had a poor outcome in blue uh, a, a good outcome and you can see on the bottom here you would have the intensity and so if you would have an intensity and therefore a uh, intracranial pressure of 25 millimeters hg on the left, you would here you would have uh, the uh, duration of the insult. In this case, at 25, uh, the you would have important insults. You would have a uh, modification of the outcome towards a poor outcome, even at a few minutes. 
On the other hand, if someone were to have 15 minutes of intracranial pressure, as we all do, then the outcome will, you would not have any uh, consequences of outcome unless the patient is a TBI patient or uh, and as in these patients here, and therefore their threshold may have been, be considered reduced because of other uh, problems due to the TBI itself. But as you can see, uh, patients who have a um, uh, intracranial pressure of 15 millimeters HG, very few have gone on to a poor outcome. However, a, a uh, intensity of 20 millimeters HG, even though it's considered to be normal intracranial pressure, if exposed, uh, maintained for a long period of time, or let's say 37, um, uh, more than 37 minutes, then even though a patient does have 20 millimeters HG, the patients will have a negative outcome uh, despite um, the, the, the value, simply because the patient has been exposed to this threshold, to this intensity for a long period of time. And this actually reduces the time necessary for, these, for patients to go on towards a negative outcome with a 20 millimeter HG threshold is uh, reduced even greater if the patients are presented by, by children, pediatric population. This has also been repeated in a um, study performed in Cambridge where they actually found negative outcomes already starting at 13 minutes exposure of 20 millimeters HG in TBI patients retrospective study, and things get worse when the patients have disturbed the cerebral autovascular regulation, as you can see here. So another question is, okay, I see intracranial hypertension is correlated to outcome, bad outcome, but what if I monitor these patients? Is the monitoring itself correlated to a change in the outcome? Uh, Ever since that's the, the beginning of the 80s, uh, um, where Narion actually described that um, despite knowing that uh, intracranial hypertension is correlated to bad outcome, uh, the fact that we, whether we monitor or do not monitor these patients is not, has not proven, uh, given us any proof whether monitoring does actually improve outcome or not. There is uh, one study, it's the Synapsis ICP study, which has shown some benefit in patients who weigh in a population um, of, of patients who had a, um, at least one reactive pupil, some benefit of monitoring ICP. Patients who receive ICP monitoring went on to have a, a better outcome in uh, status, uh, if they were stratified, stratified sorry, by uh, pupil reactivity. However, you probably all know this study. Uh, performed by Randy Cheston in 2012, where he actually compared two groups using composite uh, outcome. Uh, he compared um, low-middle-income countries in South America, where they use the um, ICE protocol. Uh, that means that patients who had a, tra a traumatic brain injury, they uh, did not have invasive ICP monitoring, but their therapy was based on only imaging and their clinical examination. That's the ICE. On the left, you would just have a um, consensus which was based on this ICE protocol. And basically, they indicate what may be the, um, what we should look at on CT scans when we're, when we're um, trying to decide what type of a therapy to, to start and what type of strategy 
to start in these patients without having ICP monitoring. And uh, this population was compared to a high income uh, um, countries uh, in, in Europe and the United States and uh, other areas in the world where ICP monitoring was routinely applied. And guess what? No difference in outcome between these two groups. I'm not that surprised by, by this result, actually, uh, because uh, Randy's uh, findings were kind of a uh, eye opener since that uh, it doesn't, um, the patient outcome cannot depend only on one single number on whether the patient has a high intracranial hypertension or not, but we also have to know why that patient has uh, increased uh, uh, ICP. Why is that number above a certain threshold? I compare it to uh, fever in the ICU. We could have, we can measure the patient, the patient's temperature. If the patient has fever, we could reduce the fever by using uh, antipyretic drugs. But uh, we need to um, try to find what the cause of the fever is. And uh, if we treat all types of fever in the same way, we might risk doing harm to certain patients. We have to know if we have to use antibiotics or antiviral drugs or whatnot. So it's important not only to know what, to look at the symptom and treat the symptom itself, in this case, an increase in ICP, but we have to know what has caused it. As a matter of fact, in the Seattle consensus in 2019, they also indicate uh, what types of treatments are not recommended when only a single ICP monitoring is uh, used. Just for to use uh, as um, an example, let's look at the problem with hypotension in patients who have had severe traumatic brain injury. Now we know that hypotension, uh, if let's let's um, adjust this to age, okay. Uh, hypotension along with uh, hypoxia in uh, TBI patients, and especially in the early phase, is a independent um, uh, is independently correlated to poor outcome. And uh, as you can see here, this kind of in this figure here, it kind of makes kind of a uh, typical U-shaped curve where especially if you go towards the left towards hypotension, the patient's outcome will uh, deteriorate. And um, therefore, the guidelines which have been uh, made based on this fact indicate that patients who have TBI should maintain a uh, systolic blood pressure above 100 or 110 millimeters Hg and uh, mean arterial pressure above 80 or 90 millimeters Hg uh, based on also the age and uh, if there are any extracranial uh, injuries involved. But we're kind of doing the same, and also, sorry, the issue of perfusion pressure is indicated to be in the BTF guidelines, uh, should be the indicated issue of perfusion pressure to be maintained between 60 and 70 millimeters Hg. So this is kind of a um, one size should fit all protocol. We, this protocol should be, um, should show, give benefit to everybody who would be using this protocol who has had TBI. Uh, actually, as we can see from this, the, uh, this figure, the, this graph, the time course of CBF 
in uh, following head injury is not always uniform. You can start from, uh, especially during the few hours, where the CBF may be below threshold, and then during the course of the patient's uh, ICU stay, or wherever the patient is uh, has been admitted to, that a CBF may increase and then normalize if the patient were to survive. This is another example. In the first, if you if in white in the uh, this trajectory you had vasogenic edema, in red you would have cerebral blood flow, and the yellow is indicating cytotoxic edema. In the first phase of TBI, you would have a phase where the patient would be hypoperfused, and therefore you need to defend the CPP, increase try to increase your mean arterial blood pressure because ICP will have increased mostly due to uh, uh, um, cytotoxic edema. So TBI is high, cerebral uh, edema is present, cerebral blood flow is low, so you need to drive, push that driving uh, pressure and therefore CPP. The following days, many patients go off towards, go towards having what uh, this, this autonomy, they would have maybe a loss in uh, cerebral autoregulation and uh, they may start to become, uh, they have a catecholaminergic surge or um, similar episodes where you see the patients starting to have increase in arterial blood pressure. Or uh, here you could also have vasoplegia and therefore hyperemia. And uh, this will may eventually lead to what uh, we all know as vasogenic edema. And this also may cause an increase in intracranial pressure. So therefore you have two different phases. One is characterized by a low CBF and the other is characterized by hyperemia. However, both have an increase in ICP. If you were to treat these patients blindly, maybe the first phase you treat this patient with a hypertensive drugs and this patient with a hypotensive drug, you will wind up doing harm to these patients. So we, uh, as mentioned previously, one size does not uh, uh, fit all. And since we're going towards a more tailor-made um, uh, medicine and our strategies also have to be uh, indicated in that, in that sense. But we do need more information, don't we, in order to treat our patients. I've mentioned before cerebral autoregulation. We know that uh, cerebral autoregulation or blood flow within our brain is regulated uh, towards where the brain mostly, mostly needs it. And it's done through mechanisms which are similar to traffic lights. These traffic lights are represented by four main mechanisms. And the one we'll be most interested in speaking about today is pressure autoregulation. Now, let's say ICPs maintain constant pressure autoregulation is mainly um, um, varied in and um, uh, controlled by increases and in, uh, reductions in uh, resistance, cerebrovascular resistance. And this is where all the action is, mainly uh, where the uh, small arterioles and precapillary arterioles are uh, contained. Therefore, by vasodilation, which causes a reduction in resistance and vasoconstriction, which causes an increase in resistance, we can uh, in increase respectively increase or reduce cerebral blood flow. Without cerebral autoregulation, our uh, cerebral blood vessels would be very similar to a normal uh, pipe where any increase or reduction 
in the, the uh, uh, pressure within the pipe will cause an increase or reduction in the flow without, or, or without any regulation. It was the um, Blasen who first uh, in uh, Bethesda who firstly indicated this uh, mechanism of cerebral auto relation, uh, creating the uh, uh, Lassen curve. And uh, just briefly, I think it would be worthwhile to speak about cerebrovascular auto regulation. We uh, know that uh, if you uh, consider our arterial blood pressure as our first parameter, if you would increase arterial blood pressure, that would cause, as I mentioned earlier, a increase in cerebrovascular uh, um, vascular resistance. This is due to a vascular constriction, and uh, this would cause uh, a reduction in the cerebral blood volume, obviously. And uh, therefore, if you're measuring ICP, you will see a reduction in uh, intracranial pressure. Therefore, you have here an increase in one parameter, a reduction in the second parameter, in this case ICP, and that's a negative correlation. Negative correlation uh, indicates a conserved cerebral vascular autoregulation. And this is what, if you're using a certain type of monitoring system, this is called the PRX, and this is the pressure reactivity index. And just to in, provide you with a, uh, a threshold, which I will get into later on, a, a normal threshold is a PRX below 0.2. So that's a negative correlation. The same way, if I were to reduce arterial blood pressure, that will cause vasodilation in order to reduce the resistance. Vasodilation uh, within the cerebral blood vessels will lead to an increase in cerebral blood volume and therefore an increase in intracranial pressure. And here we still have a negative correlation. Therefore, the uh, PRX is uh, still uh, in the, um, 0.2, therefore indicative of preserved cerebrovascular autoregulation. If, however, these two parameters, or we could even use other parameters, for example, a flow velocity as measured by TCD or uh, cerebral oxygenation as measured by invasive or non-invasive ox uh, oxygenation methods. If these parameters move in the same direction, then the correlation is positive and therefore we would have a disturbed cerebrovascular autoregulation. In this case, PRX would indicate a uh, threshold value of above 0.2. And this is the um, last, la, the, let's say, modern version of the Lassen curve, where between values of 50 and 150 millimeters Hg of cerebral perfusion pressure or arterial pressure, if you're not using, if you're not measuring ICP, our cerebral blood flow will be maintained constant. Below the uh, threshold of 50, your vessels will start to um, eventually collapse until they go towards a critical closing pressure, and that will cause a complete pseudo-circuitory arrest. Above 150 millimeters Hg, eventually the um, um, autoregulation mechanisms will be exhausted, and therefore, instead of having a vasoconstriction, then your vessels will start to dilate and you will have hyperemia. And this is just again represented in this, uh, in this figure here. Uh, if you maintain that negative correlation between these two values here of 50 and 150, 
the PRX would indicate a value below 0.2. Below or above these uh, thresholds, you would have these parameters moving in the same direction and therefore a positive correlation and disturbed cerebrovascular autoregulation. We just had a meeting in uh, Imola. It was kind of cool because we had all the uh, race car boxes and uh, just to ourselves for the meeting. And in each box, we had um, uh, workshops going on. And uh, in one of the workshops, uh, I spoke about uh, autoregulation. And obviously, since they gave each one of us a, a chance to uh, uh, have a run on the uh, racetrack in, uh, in one of these Formula One cars with two uh, places and two, uh, two, seat, two seats, two seater, the pilot was in the front, uh, it was in the back actually and uh, the uh, guest was in the front. And I could assure you that at 300 kilometers, which is about what 180, 190 miles per hour, uh, you, the, the road would kind of look um, a tenth of what it actually was in, in sense of diameter. It's, obvious, uh, a, it's obviously an um, optical illusion, but uh, uh, it, uh, let's say that this road was actually in that in that way, made in that way, that we would have a a large road here, would be the width would be kind of large, and we would have a very narrow part of the road here. I look at autoregulation as being um, having a safe area here where we would have a large threshold of 50 and 100 millimeters Hg. And if we were to move towards the left or towards the right, we would have to, we have a large space within which we could, we could drive our Formula One car without going towards uh, any problems. And are the BTF guidelines actually, as mentioned previously, indicate a safe area as being between 60 and 70 millimeters Hg. However, in patients with brain injury in general, this uh, area is, uh, is, is actually narrowed. The uh, autoregulatory um, thresholds uh, become narrower. Therefore, uh, if we were to apply the uh, indication of the BTF guidelines between 16 and 70, then we wouldn't have much room uh, where we could actually drive our car without going towards any problems, without crashing. It's just an example. And that's kind of what happens. Uh, we could actually have patients that would not have any oil regulatory mechanisms at all. And it would look like the first figure, which I've showed you, almost looking like a, uh, a straight line where we would have patients who would not autoregulate at all and have uh, what I showed previously, these parameters moving in the same direction, where above this threshold, you would have an increase in ICP and below this threshold, you would have a reduction in ICP, but the price you would pay would be a reduction in cerebral blood flow. And if we were to have all our patients, this is where one size does not fit all. If we would have all our brain trauma patients or even stroke patients or whatnot to follow just one single protocol and have one single uh, indication of a threshold, in this case, the BTF and trauma, brain trauma found in, B, in TBI patients, a threshold of 60 to 70, we would miss all those patients who would have disturbed autoregulation and have that autoregulatory curve move towards the right. Therefore, 
in these patients, they would go towards a hypoperfusion and therefore uh, brain ischemia. There are ways of measuring uh, cerebral autoregulation, and um, we did acquire one of the softwares, that's the ICM Plus from uh, Peter's Maleski in Cambridge, which has become now, uh, this is what it looked like at the beginning when we acquired it, and now they actually are quite, uh, it's become quite modern, and many centers in the States also have acquired the system, actually gives you a good indication of the patient is autoregulating or not, both through these linear or these graphs and also a color graph. As you can see, when the uh, CP, these two parameters, CPP and ICP, move in the same direction, the red is shown here as a uh, disturbed cerebral autoregula autoregulation. And when they move in the opposite direction, uh, therefore autoregulation preserved, uh, the uh, um, color code turns green. Uh, I should move on. And it's also possible to find, if you plot this on a chart, putting the CPP on the bottom and the PRX on the left, we could find the best uh, CPP. And that's the perfusion, cerebral perfusion pressure, uh, where the brain is mostly protected, um, since that's the area where CVA, cerebrovascular regulation, is mostly preserved. So how do we diagnose, how do we perform diagnosis of uh, intracranial hypertension. Obviously, by, by the, there we could measure C, uh, uh, intracranial pressure, but we could also look at the CT scans, maybe. A CT scan is uh, effective when we're looking at indicators of intracranial hypertension, for example, brain swelling or compressed cisterns or midline shift uh, uh, or a reduction in the uh, gray and white differentiation and whatnot. Um, but we may miss lesions, for example, of the brainstem or a diffuse axonal injury, which are not actually correlated with increases in, necessarily with increases in ICP, but they are correlated with a negative or a poor outcome. In this case, MRI is much more accurate in picking up these uh, lesions, and they can give us uh, maybe an indication of uh, which are the who, who are the patients that we would benefit from uh, therapies which are directed towards a reduction in ICP, avoiding uh, these types of therapies, which sometimes can be harmful, uh, avoiding these types of therapies in patients who would not benefit from ICP uh, therapies. So therefore, we have to so we must distinguish between two groups of patients: intracranial hypertension. Uh, which represents the cause of poor outcome, and intracranial hypertension, which simply represents a marker of a poor outcome. There is this interesting uh, study performed in Lancet in 2019. This is the center TPI group, where they performed a series of MRI and CT scans, and they seen that uh, roughly 8% of patients had a uh, positive CT with a negative MRI, so the CT in these uh, 8% was a bit more accurate in uh, picking up um, post-traumatic SAH or an epidural hematoma, but maybe it's maybe due to timing. However, there were 16% um, uh, of patients who had a positive MRI uh, despite having a negative MRI. And detecting a, a negative CT uh, with a positive MRI uh, lesions 
could actually identify those patients less likely to benefit from aggressive ICP therapy, which I mentioned previously. We may use biomarkers in order to try to get an indication of whether the patient may have certain types of injuries or not, but it looks promising, but we're not actually there yet. So we need to measure the ICP itself. And there are both invasive and non-invasive methods of measuring ICP. The, uh, uh, these methods uh, ideally should be easily equipped to apply. They should be reliable. They should not be associated with complications and they should be bedside. Uh, regarding the invasive um, methods for measuring ICP, the, they do represent the gold standard. And uh, these are just some of the um, devices out on the field, which you are very familiar with. The gold standard uh, is represented by a in, uh, intraventricular catheter being inserted through a uh, bolt or maybe even tunneled within uh, through the uh, um, the uh, scalp into the uh, one of the uh, ventricles, outer ventricles, and uh, this is a obviously an invasive method, which is highly reliable. However, not easy to apply or quick to apply. Uh, it is associated with complications, for example, uh, especially infections. And uh, at least in my center, we don't normally perform it be uh, bedside. It is performed in uh, the uh, OR. Uh, the intraventricular catheter can give us a lot of information. Um, we measure ICP for two reasons. One, two, to have information regarding intracranial hypertension. Two, to have information regarding cerebral perfusion pressure, because as I mentioned previously, and as indicated here, uh, CPP is the difference between mean arterial pressure and ICP. And also for therapeutic reasons, obviously, because if we introduce a catheter within the ventricles, we could use this uh, uh, device or uh, to drain CSF in case of increased intracranial pressure. And we could also set the limit uh, based on how much we want to drain on a certain uh, threshold here indicated as 10 millimeters HG. And uh, we also, um, here we could look at some certain types of, um, I, how can you say it, uh, waveforms. Um, here you, you have information just by looking at the waveform, whether the intracranial pressure is increased or not by comparing uh, these three indicators here, P1, P2, P3, which are respectively, uh, the, uh, they're related to the uh, arterial pulse and to the rebound pulse and uh, which is um, the uh, cerebral compliance, and also the third, which is the uh, uh, necrotic notch in the arterial pulse. If P2 should surpass P1, then this is an indicator of increased uh, intracranial uh, hypertension. And if they would actually disappear, this means that the uh, hypertension is actually quite high. But remember, once we insert this uh, ventricular drain, uh, we reduce the intracranial pressure, but we're just buying time. We have to still verify what has actually increased the intracranial pressure itself. It's almost like decompressive craniectomy. Once you perform decompressive craniectomy, the problem hasn't resolved. You just resolved it temporarily, 
you still have to find out and treat what has caused that increase in intracranial pressure, which has uh, brought you to that decompressive craniectomy itself. And remember that once you insert the drain, you have to be careful if there is not a communication between the ventricles or the CSF, then uh, you may cause a problem if you completely drain on one side, this can cause a shift, it could cause a delta P towards the ventricle which has been drained. And it also if you have over drainage of the, uh, these are two, actually two catheters inserted. If you have over drainage, then you will go towards what they call a slip ventricles and this may be correlated also with the cognitive decline. Another form of invasive ICP monitoring is a bolt screw, which is uh, completely inserted, uh, which is inserted through the uh, scalp uh, into the subarachnoid space. And here you would insert a catheter into the, um, uh, into the brain parenchyma, just a few uh, millimeters. And it's uh, relatively easy to apply. It is reliable and uh, it's performed at uh, bedside. And uh, I will just uh, spend just a couple of minutes on this topic itself. We uh, can we, what I mean by is, can we save time? I don't know what you do there in uh, Baltimore where you're uh, listening from. Uh, we performed a few studies. Uh, one of our colleagues were, spent some time at Richmond uh, in Virginia where uh, uh, Anthony Marmaru I used to work and uh, when he came back he we started putting in placing bolts ourselves actually since uh, the, the late 1980s so um together with other studies uh there are, um, there's a lot of literature showing that icp bolts can be placed uh, by intensive care physicians without any differences in complication in the complication rate and i'm performing a study now where um, it's called Timing ICP, and that's the acronym right here. Uh, it's in Italy. It's a multi-center study in Italy, uh, where I'm comparing the ICP bolt placement, uh, the time necessary to place the bolt between intensive care physicians and uh, neurosurgeons. And uh, what I'm looking uh, at here is not who does it better, obviously, but how much time it takes uh, for how much time do we actually save if uh, an intensive care physician after consultation, obviously with the neurosurgeon, that's always necessary, uh, puts in the boat uh, him or herself compared to the uh, involvement of the neurosurgeon also through maybe uh, having to find the surgeons. You know, neurosurgeons have a lot of things to do. Uh, so maybe sometimes as for any, any consultation, it takes, it may take some time for the uh, for the other second physician to be involved. So we're looking at, we're comparing it between these two um, categories. And we're looking at the time difference between indication of ICP monitoring itself and the uh, time that passes between indication and the actual skin incision between, again, between two categories, the incision performed by the intensivist or by the uh, neurosurgeon. And the idea again is that uh, the more time you spend without ICP monitoring, as we've seen previously uh, when we spoke about the dose, if it's true that the more time you spend with high ICP, the worse the outcome, then it's true that the more time you spend without treating uh, high ICP, theoretically you would have a worse outcome. Outcome is a different story. I hope to look at that in a different, a different study, but 
uh, we're trying to reduce the time spent without any ICP monitoring. And that hopefully would mean that the patient would be monitored earlier. And as uh, Paul Vespa in UCLA would uh, frequently say, to detect uh, is to protect. And just to give you a hint, this is just a training that we performed. Uh, we, um, we performed an interim analysis and we've seen that until now, the median time that we actually save is uh, from, goes from 45 to an hour and a half. So uh, time is actually saved by performing it uh, ourselves. Non-invasive methods, very briefly, they are very easily and quick to apply and no complication rate, obviously, because they're non-invasive and uh, many are performed at bedside. But regarding reliability, that's a different story, isn't it? I'll speak about TCD and optic nerve sheet diameter very briefly. Um, I've worked a few years in uh, Cambridge where I picked up this method. This is a formula which was initially created by Rune Asley, who actually uh, was the first to perform Doppler transcranially in Austria, modified by the Cambridge group by Marek Sosnikov just by inserting diastolic flow velocity within the formula. And he actually was able to estimate CPP non-invasively with a roughly good average. 86% of the measurements fell within a range of 10 millimeters Hg of the true CPP measured invasively. I decide, and obviously if you, again, with that formula, um, subtract CPP from uh, mean arterial pressure, you would get non-invasive ICP. I performed a first study, a pilot study in Italy, multicenter study, where I've seen, I've compared non-invasive measurement to the gold standard, any type of invasive method. And uh, I, I performed three correlations, TCD before the ICP insertion, and then the first measurement of ICP measured invasively. A second measurement uh, correlation between TCD measured ICP and invasive measurement right after invasive ICP insertion. And the third correlation performed two to three hours after the uh, um, ICP uh, measurement, invasive ICP measurement. And we actually found uh, quite astonishing results. If we use the threshold of 20 millimeters Hg, then 18 out of the uh, 21 readings, uh, the TCD uh, showed a uh, accurate reading compared to invasive ICP measurement. If that threshold was increased to 24.8 millimeters Hg, then the uh, um, the accuracy actually increased quite a lot. The sensitivity actually increased almost to 100%, meaning that the IC, uh, ICP measured non-invasively through TCD um, actually excluded uh, a true intracranial hypertension uh, almost 100% of the time. Uh, however, it kind of overestimated uh, ICP uh, quite oftenly. We uh, investigated this furtherly, uh, further through a multicenter international uh, study looking um, at four main intracranial pathologies, TBI, SAH, intracranial uh, um, hemorrhage, and ischemic stroke. And um, the 16 centers were involved, including the center in the States, which, in the States, which was the Columbia, Columbia, New York, 
we included 262 patients, 687 paired measurements of non-invasive and invasive ICP measurements were performed at three different thresholds of 20, 22, uh, and 25 millimeters Hg. Let's say that there was uh, um, the error range when looking at the Blonde and Altman thresholds, there was quite um, a lot of error. Uh, but what, again, we were able to confirm is that there was a very high negative predictive value of uh, transcranial Doppler in measuring non-invasive ICP, which was quite high. It increased, obviously, going from 20 to 25. But uh, this meant, again, that um, the non-invasive TCD method was very accurate in excluding the presence of intracranial hypertension. However, there was a quite high overshoot, meaning that when TCD showed that ICP was high, it wasn't necessarily high on invasive measurement. But we're looking at a, a second study uh, where we're trying to see if maybe TCD, when it, it indicated a high value of ICP, maybe it was telling us, giving us uh, further information, maybe indicating altered resistance. We're also looking into performing a third study. This would uh, be a randomized control trial where we'd be, we'd be uh, randomizing uh, based on the uncertainty principles. We exclude patients who would definitely require ICP and patients who would definitely not require invasive ICP and those who would have a uncertain indication of ICP monitoring, we would randomize these patients to either receiving invasive ICP monitoring or non-invasive ICP monitoring. That is in the, uh, we're still at the uh, bench uh, process of this uh, study and we're doing the uh, statistics for this Another, another method I'm sure you're all uh, familiar with is the optic nerve sheath diameter measurement. Uh, very quickly, we know that the optic nerve is, is communication with the uh, brain subarachnoid area space through the, uh, uh, the um, subarachnoid fluid, which uh, circumnavigates the, uh, the optic nerve. And when there is an increase in intracranial pressure, this would dilate, this would increase the space between the optic nerve sheath. And therefore, it would um, surpass a certain threshold, which be considered to be five millimeters. And where would we measure this? That would we would just simply look at, find the retina with the ultrasound, move three millimeters posterior towards the optic nerve from the retina, and at this point, we would measure the diameter between the uh, optic nerve sheath. If this diameter would be above, again, 0 0.5 uh, centimeters or 5 millimeters, in this case, it's almost 6, and this would be indicative of intracranial hypertension. If it's below that threshold, uh, the, this patient most likely would not uh, have intracranial hypertension. Again, this is a threshold. Uh, one size does not fit all, and this is also equivalent to a patient's uh, nerve sheath diameter. Uh, but let's say if you have very high uh, values of optic nerve sheath diameter or very low uh, values, then uh, this would uh, most likely indicate in, or not indicate intracranial hypertension, especially if you use this method with other uh, non-invasive method. In this study, we've performed a systematic review led by uh, Chiara Roba 
where we've seen that in this systematic review and meta-analysis that uh, optic nerve sheath diameter compared to other uh, methods of measuring ICP non-invasively did have a higher uh, specificity compared to the other methods. Uh, upcoming automated pupillometry, which is being used in many areas, this, uh, also uh, regarding intracranial hypertension, uh, by using, we, it's been known for quite some time now that a reduction in the constriction velocity and in the pupillary light reflex and in asymmetry in the pupils is correlated with an increase in intracranial uh, pressure. And uh, a lot of work done by Mauro Odo and his group and Fabio Tacona, we've also performed some studies where we've shown that uh, a uh, um, index uh, derived from this uh, pupillometer in particular from neuroptics, when it is altered, this uh, corresponds and correlates quite well to an increase in intracranial pressure. And when treating the intracranial pressure, let's say with osmotic therapy, the uh, index will return to normal values. And this is kind of, this is highly correlated to uh, outcome. So upcoming. Actually, I've actually used it as they've used it in this study where they use the um, pupillometry to uh, test whether closing a clamping in EVD drain um, when uh, one is trying to uh, wean the patient from the EVD drain. If there is an uh, altered NPI or a trend in altered NPI, this would actually indicate that there's an increase in intracranial hypertension. This correlates quite well to a uh, CT scan indicating uh, hydrocephalus. Uh, again, it's very important to look at the waveforms. Uh, as mentioned previously, when you have a variation in the waveform, in this case, as mentioned before, variations in the P1 and the P2 um, uh, waveforms, then this is indicative of a, a change or variation compliance. There are other uh, upcoming methods of measuring ICP non-invasively. This method in particular, the random Rowan encephalography, which was initially created in order to measure uh, cerebral blood flow. Now they're looking, uh, using the same concept, uh, comparing the two peaks of P1 and P2. Uh, they're looking into using this method to measure ICP, normal waveform, abnormal waveform, just like as in the CSF waveforms. And this is another method, which is actually, you can look, you can find this also on the internet. Uh, where they use the same, basically the same principle. And it's done non-invasively. It's just a crown placed around uh, the circumference of the uh, of your head. And it measures the tonometry of the, uh, of the, uh, and the compliance of the brain uh, scalp and measures their very subtle differences. And it's actually picked up by this machine. Um, very interesting uh, to see that in this comparison, you have here a patient who has the P2 higher than the P1, lumbar drainage is performed, and the uh, P1 becomes higher than the P2, so clear indication that the compliance was picked up by this machine and returned back to normal. There's actually a paper that's just been published regarding this, this uh, concept. We also uh, use and having using, there are a few papers published regarding this, the, a certain type of non-invasive ICP bundle where once the patient comes into the um, comes into the emergency room, uh, besides performing when you're performing your fast or your focus, just take that same 
that same uh, probe uh, and place it on the patient's head, and you could derive a lot of information uh, from that uh, uh, from from this exam. Uh, looking at the brain, the optic nerve sheet diameter, you could actually look inside the brain and see if there's a midline shift or if there's a hematoma. And again, you could actually measure intracranial pressure. I'm not saying this would substitute the CT scan, and you should not delay CT scan. But while you, uh, others are performing the first and second evaluation, this could be easily performed, and you could already have some important information before the patient goes to uh, either operating room because there's a positive FAST uh, examination or to a CT scan, and there you could prep the uh, 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 neuro uh, operating room, neuro theater before the patient arrives. And if you want to look at it, it's been published into intensive care medicine in 2019. A very nice picture uh, depicting all this, uh, what I've just spoken about. I'll go through this quite quickly. This is just uh, an example of how we could use non-invasive ICP monitoring um, when IC invasive ICP monitoring is not possible. Uh, we could use it either uh, together and adjunct to ICP, invasive ICP monitoring, or when it's not possible because a patient may be awake or may have an important coagulopathy, or when we may not have the possibility of having a, a neurosurgeon on hand, we could initially perform non-invasive ICP monitoring followed by imaging. Very quickly, I'm going towards the end, uh, management. Uh, we know that uh, in, monitor is only worthwhile if it's able to change or uh, make you make, a, um, sorry, uh, influence your therapeutic strategy. Otherwise, it's not uh, useful at all. Uh, however, we know that um, the mechanisms leading to secondary brain damage are quite, uh, are many. And our therapies uh, until now, which have been aimed at treating or um, avoiding secondary brain injury, haven't been quite successful. And that's kind of easy to understand since, again, the, uh, the roads that lead, the uh, paths that lead towards secondary brain injury are quite a lot. You can't just block one uh, mechanism and expect the other mechanisms to to not uh, con continue their path. I compare it almost like to the uh, Milano Underground, the subway. That if I were to go from point A to point B, representing secondary brain damage, if you want to block my path, you could. It's not you won't be able to do it by just blocking one singular path. You need to block all the other ways I could uh, manage going from point A to point B, and eventually I could still reach it. In Brescia, where I live, actually, it would be nice if it, we would have a um, mechanism which was actually similar to the Brescia underground. You only have a north and a south. So if you would block my path in this area, you would block uh, brain injury. But it's not that way. There's no magic bullet. We could get some help from multimodality monitoring. Just an example, if we just have one single monitoring method, uh, we won't know uh, for certain if uh, the uh, uh, parameter is going in the right direction. If we have other monitoring methods, this could kind of give us a, a better indication if maybe uh, that one single monitor is telling us something different compared to everybody else who's going in a different direction. There are both invasive methods. This is just one patient. This is an old slide of one of our patients uh, 10 years ago. We had both invasive methods and non-invasive methods. 
If I were to, however, pick between the uh, necessary invasive uh, and non-invasive methods, these are the ones which I would definitely uh, not do without. Invasive intracranial pressure is still the gold standard, as is brain tissue oxygenation and autoregulation. And then pupillometry, ultrasound, continuous EEG and imaging could definitely give us more information to help treat our patient uh, 360 degrees. Uh, I'm finishing with these uh, two uh, slides. Uh, this is the, if we want to treat intracranial pressure, let's say due to uh, traumatic brain injury, there are a lot of flow charts which have been created. This is the uh, flow chart created uh, after the uh, Seattle International uh, TBI Consensus Conference, where you would start from T tier zero, where there are the uh, basic or general principles that you would uh, use in order to maintain a um, certain steady state in, in any patient, besides whether it be TBI patient or any type of patient. And TBI patient in particular, you would maintain hemoglobin above seven, uh, above seven an elevated uh, head maybe above 30 and, uh, degrees and below 45 degrees in order to uh, favor uh, CSF flow and sedation should be performed, but not too deep. And also uh, try to um, maintain a normal CO2. And obviously the patient has to be uh, mechanically ventilated since we're speaking about severe TBI. If the patient would have an increase in intracranial pressure, then you would increase to uh, first, second and third tier therapies, not necessary in disorder. You would also go from a, a tier one directly to a tier, tier through therapy. Uh, based on the necessity to uh, to treat intracranial uh, hypertension and its severity. And uh, I won't get into this uh, in the specifics, but you would go from a tier one where you would need to uh, maybe consider hypertonic saline or if it's not placed in certain EVD drain to a uh, tier two where you might have to hyperventilate uh, briefly without uh, uh, performing uh, a prophylactic hypo hyperventilation that would cause uh, initially a uh, vasoconstriction and therefore reduction in CBF. And if this is not enough, you may have to resort to going towards tier three therapies, which is barbiturate coma or second or uh, decompressive craniectomy or even hypothermia. Must bear in mind, this is very important, that uh, as you move towards in, uh, a more aggressive therapy, uh, the side effects will increase. Uh, however, the evidence-based medicine regarding these uh, therapies will uh, move in a different direction. Uh, for example, the best trip trial, which is uh, the Randy Chestnut trial, uh, along with the DECRA, the decompression, early decompression craniectomy, and the two uh, hypothermia trials, haven't actually shown uh, a definite benefit in uh, regarding the outcome of these, in these uh, patients. Very quickly, there are do's and don'ts of treating intracranial hypertension. Whatever we do as a do will be followed by a, a don't. Be very careful, uh, as mentioned uh, previously, not to over hyperventilate the patient because of vasoconstriction. Also, any type of uh, therapy that we can perform, uh, if not done correctly, may have a negative effect on uh, the patient.
Finishing with uh, this uh, slide, this is a very nice slide uh, made by uh, Gerd Mayfroyd, uh, sorry, slide, uh, paper published by Gerd Mayfroyd, where um, he basically used information derived from the BOOST uh, 2 study, you know, and the BOOST 3 study is actually on your hand, um, where using information derived from ICP and, and brain tissue oxygenation, uh, uh, if uh, based on the fact that if one or both uh, are altered uh, to uh, distinct the different tier therapies on the oxygenation or the intracranial pressure and the combination of uh, both these uh, these parameters. Um, actually, I'm definitely sure my time is up, so I would like to thank you for your attention if I've left anybody awake during all this. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Zulo. Uh, we'll let, I know some of the fellows probably had to hop off to um, go back to some clinical duties. I don't, I don't see anything in the chat, but I'm uh, happy, would be happy if someone uh, had a question, they can just unmute themselves or type it in the chat. And I guess I'll just start off with my um, one question. Um, uh, and it's mostly about non-invasive neuromonitoring. And do you foresee this, you know, like a POCUS brain ultrasound is becoming part of training for critical care fellows? Um, for me, I'm interested really about the fellows, you know, not in the neurocritical care unit, thinking about patients with fulminant hepatic failure, um, how much they would benefit from non-invasive monitoring. And so do you see that becoming a part of our, our training, like we think of POCUS for the physical exam otherwise? I think the information derived from uh... Um, ultrasound in general is, is um, not only useful, but it's fundamental because as I mentioned uh, during the talk that even if you have invasive monitoring, again, I, I do put invasive monitoring myself. So I think it's uh, the gold standard. The looking at what's going on within the brain uh, is very important. You can distinguish between just by using ultrasound and hyperemia or hypo, um, hyperperfusion uh, that's if you don't have uh, I, um, ox brain oxygenation, which can tell you, give you the same information. But uh, combining uh, these types of methods, um, invasive method with a non-invasive method, can be very important. It can be fundamental into treating, uh, giving, into variating your therapeutic strategy. Uh, for example, you mentioned uh, uh, um, acute hepatic failure. I know there are centers, even in, in, in the States, where they would use invasive ICP monitoring at a certain stage for these patients to decide whether they would go on to having towards having a transplant or not. Um, it's, you know, uh, these patients very frequently have problems with their coagulation. So when you put invasive monitoring, it, you, it is associated with a high complication rate. Well, I was looking into trying to form a study where we would substitute um, not substitute, but compare non-invasive monitoring to invasive monitoring in these patients. But uh, let's say the uh, the uh, sample size wasn't uh, uh, high enough to perform it. So therefore, that that kind of led me to perform the impressive uh, ICP study where we uh, where we compared them. It is um, DCD measurement of non-invasive ICP is being used to to selection uh, to select these patients. However, in certain in certain centers. But it should be part of the training. Just to answer your question, it definitely should be part of training.
I think that's it for the questions. We really appreciate uh, you taking the time to chat uh, with us. It was, uh, like I said, our whole group was thrilled to have you here. So we thank you so much. Long time, <laughs> a lot of slides. <laughs> no, that's okay. It was great. Thank you again. Thank you. Bye bye now. Bye bye. Uh, thank you.